I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. If you're going to be in front of your computer on Wednesday, July 29th, I'd love to have you join us for our second ever Amp Music Summit. Uh, we launched the Amp Music Summit back in May, and now we're back with the second one. Uh, it's a day-long virtual music industry conference where we're highlighting creative companies, entrepreneurs, artists who are adapting to the landscape uh, of the moment that's shaped by coronavirus as well as social justice, racial inequality. We're trying to really surface the stories of people who are innovating, adapting, learning, uh, experimenting, all that good stuff. Anybody that's taking action, trying to build a better future for their business, for, uh, for the world, we're trying to have them on our stage. We have a really eclectic lineup speakers from billboard magazine we have a bachelor and bachelorette in paradise we have the mayor of huntsville alabama uh, i'll be interviewing laura cathcart robbins who you may have heard on this podcast previously she's the host of the only one in the room podcast um, we have the creators of the bitterroot comic book series really cool lineup i'm super excited to share it with you you can get tickets now at ampmusicsummit.com ampmusicsummit.com this is Raymond Roker. You are in tune with Josh Levine's Rebel Radio, my good friend. And if you're not listening, start listening. Fuck you, Josh Levine. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh -huh. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and today I have a very special episode for you. Uh, my guest is one of my closest personal friends and one of my most important collaborators throughout my career. Uh, Raymond Roker is the producer of the new Coachella documentary which you can find on YouTube. Um, he's the head of content at AEG and Golden Voice. Uh, he was previously the founder of Herb Magazine, 
which is where I had my first job out of college. We talk about that a little bit in um, in our interview, and uh, we co-founded the agency together that is now evolved into uh, the one that produces this podcast. So we have um, lots of history between us. Uh, we get into a few of those stories. There's a lot more. Maybe we'll uh, we'll revisit some of those someday. Um, but Raymond, uh, it's a great interview because he shares with us some of the tremendous ups and downs he's had in his own career um, and really gives us insight into the idea of reinvention and what that means for businesses, what it means for individuals. Um, he also gives me a theory that I've never heard before about the idea of seasons in business and, and how you have to anticipate that, prepare for it, uh, adapt to it, all of that. Really cool, uh, really cool insight that um, is new for me. Um, we also talk a little bit about him giving me my first sort of career break when I was working at Herb and, uh, and this idea of proximity, which is putting yourself in situations that will allow you to succeed even maybe if you don't know where that road's going to take you. It's a great interview. I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, let's get into it right now. We're here to talk about you. I want to talk about this Coachella documentary that is uh, beautifully shot and, and really a great, great movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about Herb Magazine and your history building that and some of the stuff we did together. Um, but uh, start us off at the very beginning. Do you remember the first record you ever bought? Like actually bought. See, that's the tricky thing. Bought or like so you chose went, it. Got. You chose yeah, it. Chose. Uh, See, these questions are unfair, too, because it'll really show, it'll date me. It'll really easily date me. But, of course. Uh, all right, fair enough. You know, I'm not a young kid. I, I won't lie. Um, first record was, there were two of them. One was Lip Sync, Funky Town. Great. And the other was Call Me, the single, Blondie. Blondie's Call Me, yeah. Giorgio Moroder, which yeah. is awesome, yeah. uh, which, of course, I didn't have any appreciation for at the time, but uh, came to, uh, who just turned 80. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, those were two records, and I got them from a, a radio station, like, you know, one of them called in or something. Oh, that's and, cool. You know, got to pick them, you know, got to pick the records, sort of, nice. you know. Uh, I mean, I at least in, in my mind, I, I made that choice i know that i i love those records and i'm sure that those were ones that i was trying to get yeah. um beyond that I, like i got records for my mom because she had some around the house and i would i i reached for certain ones that i sort of made my own she had one she had a she had a album by three dog night it was kind of like three dog night's greatest hits mm -hmm. um they had that song black and white which i still love to this day and but um that was one that i pulled into my collection um you know, she had the wall. She had uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. I pulled that into my collection, sort of like took ownership of it. Um, I don't know when I when I started buying records. When I bought records was more like hip hop era. Okay. So that's, you know, like when I had like money to actually go and buy a record. Uh, Run DMC's first record was probably the record that sort of, I would say that record sort of set me on a path. Mm -hmm. Like that was the first album 
Hard Times, It's Like That, Rockbox, which was like incredible. When I heard Rockbox, it all came together for me. Mm. Like when I heard that record, what it was was like I was a I was into rock. I was a I was a I was a heavy metal kid. I was yeah. like you know I was a bit of a metal. We called them stoners back in the day. I was kind of like hung out with the kids that smoked weed and listened to metal. And I was big into Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. And uh, to hear that with hip hop, I was all like. It was all I needed to sort of get that that hip hop was going to be this sort of innovative force in my life, and uh, uh, you know, from there, the rest is sort of history, as they say. I think in the in the in the months and years followed, I just went deep and started listening to all the mix shows and recording recording uh, K Day mix master shows, and yeah. you know, pushing the tape on. You know, we'd leave the house, go, go, go f around on Saturday night. I'd press record, come back hours later. You know, I'd have this mixtape of of the shows. And, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. I mean, that's great. And and you know, I know you're a bit of a music historian and anthropologist, like I am. Um, and I think you know, when we talk about hip hop now. You know, we talk about Rakim and and Jay Z and these these uh, icons. And I think that. <laughs> Run DMC is not forgotten in that, but people that aren't our age and weren't there yeah. don't realize the impact that they had, right? And there's a great record. There's a, if you listen to the first Ghetto Boys album, mm-hmm. they have this whole this song that's full of shout outs and they shout out Run DMC and they yeah. say something about they saved the music when it was about to take a dive. I forget exactly yeah. how they said I think Willie D. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the thing, right? Like when, you know, they were the first superstars. There's no doubt. They were the first rap superstars. They were, but it was at a time when it was, that was all about breaking and it was this electro right. thing. And, yeah. you know, the, you had the disco and the electro yeah. and that was hip hop. And, and there was this whole thing about it. Is, is that a fad or is it going to last? And then all of a sudden Run yeah. DMC came out. There was no disco. There was no yeah. funkadelic, no, you know, suits. Right. It was, it was, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, the music was very stripped down and that was really the invention yeah. of hip hop as its own sound. Yeah. And, uh, well, cause they had every, they had every element, you know, they had the, 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 the dress was something that was, was, could be replicated in the hood. Right. It reflected the hood, but it could also be like adopted. Right. Yeah. But it also Shelter, wasn't borrowed. Adidas, no laces, like all this, the, 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 the jeans, the denim, the leather jacket. Like it was all stuff you could get down the street. It wasn't like a costume. Right. I mean, it was an outfit, but it wasn't a costume. And the beats were street beats. There was sparse. It was hard. The lyrics were relatable. Plus they had the DJ, Jam Master J, that centerpiece of their whole thing. Yeah. Um, and... Like everything about it was just iconic, and then of course you know things like Aerosmith and mm-hmm. Walk This Way and like the stuff mm-hmm. they were doing. Um, I mean, it revitalized Aerosmith's career, uh, and it obviously changed the whole movement for for hip hop and for for those guys. Uh, yeah, I mean they you know they did a ton. It was yeah. hard to measure. 
This episode of Rebel Radio is brought to you by Issue. I'm excited to have Issue on the show because I know a lot of you are creatives. You're producing content uh, just like we are. And Issue is a great tool. If you have content to push out and a story to share, it removes a lot of the complexity to make your content look amazing, make it easy to share exactly the way you envisioned it. We're actually using it right now. Uh, you probably heard me talk about it. If we just hit our five-year anniversary. We're producing a little piece on the last five years to share with all of you. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and we're using Issue to do it because it makes it easy to, we're using their templates, putting everything into a PDF, uh, it allows us to create once and distribute it everywhere on our website, on the social platforms. It'll be on our Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we'll be able to share it with all of you and all of the millions of other people that use Issue as well. Best of all, it's free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash rebel to sign up for your free account. That's I-S-S-U-U dot info slash rebel. To sign up, let them know you heard about it from our show. Remember, that's .info, not .com. Go to issue.info slash rebel and set up your free account today. You know, it also brings up an interesting thing about you. And so, you know, we met um, through Herb Magazine, which you started and, and uh, built, and had... Um, this, you know, really interesting perspective on music and culture. Yeah. Which was non genre. It was, it wasn't genre less, but it was genre fluid. I would yeah. say. And, yeah. That's a good way to put it. And, and, and knowing you and it, even hearing you talk now, like, so are you. And yeah. obviously the magazine was to some extent a reflection of you. And, and so am I. And, and a lot of the people in our friend circle, have had that and it feels like now the world has sort of caught on to that in some ways in some ways not yeah i think well i think a lot of things happened i feel i know where you were going so i'm gonna jump in with an answer please i feel like a lot so i feel so 100 percent when i started the magazine i started with a friend that i was working with at the time but uh my friend mark bankin so mark Mark brought how to do a magazine to the table and I brought what the magazine should be about to the table. Cool. He had a concept for what it should be about when we met, you know, we were both young and I said, I like the idea of doing a magazine. I don't know that I want to do it like on that subject, but what about this? And this was all about like underground culture and, uh, you know, pre raves and, yeah. and speakeasies and stuff that I was, I was into and music obviously, but the musical tapestry of the magazine was hundred percent personal. It was not at all like a focus grouped consideration. It was super personal. So I had no notion that it was going to be anything other than like an exercise of like promoting the things that I loved and like the things that I felt like the community around me was, was, would support. Mm -hmm. But the vision of, to me, like of electronic music being on the same page with hip hop, I mean, it didn't feel weird at all, right. but it was a it was a fight from the minute we launched. It would be, it, some ways, in a, some ways, a pronounced fight. Like people that really thought that they had these had no connection or shouldn't be under the same roof, and and or would you know electronic fans or you know dance music fans or underground music fans at the time would talk shit about hip hop mm -hmm. and vice versa. Hip hop kids didn't think that there was anything valid about you know and. 
I used to get pleasure just from having that debate because I felt like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it never, it yeah. never felt like an authentic argument. And then you'd only have to go back a few years to hear like Egyptian Lover and yeah. and uh, um, Magic Mike and all these things that were just like, where do you think dance music came from? Like, where yeah. do you? <laughs> do what? Did your history start in like you know '93 or did you actually see how this started in '83? Right. Because Juan Atkins was making what was played on hip hop radio when he when he made Cybertron's Clear. Ready, one, two, three, four. You know, so it, it never felt like, but fast forward to when it started to become sort of how people, you know, absorbed music and appreciated it. Because I think there were plenty of people that saw it the way I saw it, but it was harder to pursue in the sort of analog age sort of music discovery in that way. It was harder to have a collection of music that was that yeah. that broad, right? Because, you know, physically, you had to buy physical media to pursue that. So you had to have the tape, you had to have a CD, you had to have a record or something. Well, and but even, once, you know, even yeah. different stores. Different stores. You know, I, I used to have to go, like, you know, I had to go to Prime Cuts and then I had to go to uh, Earl's, uh, not, what was it? Shit, now I forget the one down, down Slauson and buy yeah. like the hip hop tapes. Or B-Boy Records, our friend Chino. For you sure. Know? I used to go, you know, yeah. and I, I mean, you talked about going back to like, in the, you know, 80s music discovery. Then it was really about like, you didn't even know what you were hearing because right. you would just hear it on a mix show. It's like, <laughs> there was no like play it and say it kind of thing. It was, you know, yeah. well, what did you hear? Yeah. So again, not to go to, not to languish in the Stone Ages, but like when the MP3 culture came in and late 90s and early 2000s, that is when I think it, it made it, it made everybody everybody's secret habit of listening to like embarrassing stuff became one easy to do under your headphones and easy to just pull up and sample. And you didn't have to buy a whole record to hear that one song that you like from Hall and Oates or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I just think the blending of music became instant and guilt-free and fun. And so from there, then you get mashup culture, which mashup DJs like Z trip and others, they were doing this stuff already for sure. many years, but yeah. it became sort of in vogue because then it became fun to hear like sweet home Alabama or hip hop beat and stuff like that. So I just think it was almost like eventually vindication, but it was also just an, uh, an accepting of what was just reality for most people. I, I think that most people that truly love music do love a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't an easy place to align yourself in a broad spectrum back in the day. And, and when we, you and I were like in, you know, high school and junior high and stuff, you know, it was all about tribalism. It was like, right. you know, jocks, <laughs> surfers, stoners, you know, the oddball kids or the goths and like everybody like kind of had to pull together into a certain like uh, silo to survive. Absolutely. And so, and I wonder, you know, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, you walk around Coachella and mm -hmm. uh, and you see that that has evaporated. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there aren't tribes. There might be different vibes, but there aren't mm -hmm. tribes. Right. Largely because they all paid to hang out together, which is the the opposite of what you would do, you know, back then. Yeah. Right. You would. Yeah. It, it'd be the other way. You it'd be like, whatever they're doing, we're not going to go do that. Um, yeah. It's very hard. Yeah, that's pretty 
absent, even though like you may say, oh, that's a pretty hardcore EDM kid. Like he's been in Sahara for, sure. you know, six hours a day for three days. But I bet you Travis Scott gets on. He's, you know, but he's also willing. Weekend, you know? He's also willing to associate himself with something yeah. that also appeals to people that are not like him, which yeah. is a fundamental difference, right? Like, um, and, and so, uh, it's not a battle anymore. That's right. the thing. It's not a fight anymore. You know, it's not, I mean, there's other fights now. There's other debates over quality of right. this current music school versus, you know, 10 years ago, you know, what are, what are um, the kids? I don't know if this is a fair question for you. Uh, but I often wonder as, as a child, as a, you know, father of a young child is, what are the kids fighting over now? Like in that, what's the new fight for them? Because that's all changed. I right? mean, my kid, yeah, my girls are too young. They're just yeah. fighting over yeah, yeah. attention and toys. Um, I don't see my, my sense, at least from like what I read in the threads or in the snarky comments and which ones rise to the top have to do more with it's it's funny because in some ways they're fighting the same fights that were around 20 and 25 years ago which is like legit is that legit is that underground is that mm. believable music is it quality um but i think it it aims a little less at the musicians and a little bit more at sort of um like what they perceive to be sort of like corporate culture or what they perceive to be sort of like the man or some okay. sort of overarching uh, attempt to co-opt them or co-opt a culture. So, you know, they would, they'll attack a Coachella or they'll attack, you know, uh, a pop artist, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but not the artist themselves so much, or maybe just like the machinery of that artist perhaps. Right. Right. I think people, it's just a, it's a snarky time. And you know what? Honestly, part of it, I think, is just it's easy to do. Mm -hmm. It's just it's, it's easy. It's lazy behavior because all you need to do is go do, 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 and like have some weird, you know, you know, screen name and like who cares. Right. And so it's so easy to opine without really developing your uh, thoughts or opinions. Um, so you have to kind of toss a lot of it out. I mean, that's so funny. It's to just say that sort and, of noise and, and just stream of consciousness you know really it's deeper than than you know perhaps i know that i know uh and it's not my purview nor is it sort of you know figure out because i think that's presumptuous to sort of like you know i always like download like everybody you know the the latest sort of like gen z study and this and that half of it's so obvious and apparent and then the rest of it is such conjecture conjecture and nonsense and like literally sort of making the case for something that was like a year ago and is yeah. probably on its way out and it, it, it's not it's not i think it's beautiful to like have the discussion i don't think there's any problem with that i think mm -hmm. it's great to have the discussion but the minute you put somebody in a box there's somebody that's not in that box and they're like you know i just think it's tough no, I agree. And and, and I agree. And, and I always have, you know, my trouble with those studies and the, and the, the greater context that they exist in is you have someone on the, the, on the customer of that is looking for easy answers, which yeah. don't exist. And then you have yeah. the, the self-proclaimed expert who's delivering this neatly, you know, packaged answer 
that as you said is is outdated or it's oversimplified or it's you know missing the yeah. nuance and i think you know both parties get to walk away feeling like they've done their job even though they've maybe only scratched the surface um and you know i think yeah. we we got to see that um in herb you know I, I i tell people the story that you know when i started at herb um you know i was todd hired me as an associate editor and, and i was sitting at the desk one day didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing editing a story, but I was, Todd was kind of teaching me that as I went. Um, and uh, and you came out, and I think it was Michael had just quit the the, the GM job, and you said, "Hey, um, you seem like you're pretty well, good on the phones." It's, the, it's an episode of The Office shaping up right now. Totally. <laughs> so so you walked up to my desk and you and you go, "Hey, you seem pretty good on the phones. Why don't you sell some ads?" And I just go, okay. And it didn't occur to me to go, how do I sell ads? And, um, and you know, I'd, I'd like to think you saw something in me that, uh, that sparked that confidence. I also think I happen to be the guy sitting there in the room who, uh, who knew <laughs> and how to operate. And went back to my office. Yeah. Um, I, I and, know that it was a deeper consideration than that, by the way. I, 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 I am confident that there was a much deeper consideration than that. Well, but, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, uh, but that's probably how it happened. That's I, probably about how it happened. Well, I tell that story as, you know, as a lesson in serendipity because that, mm -hmm. that one moment changed my life forever. It shifted the path that I was on, you know, in terms of my career and has had, you know, big implications. Um, and also I, I think there's a lesson in, you know, my response to that, which was just like, okay. Right. And kind of taking it as it comes and, and, you yeah. know, not saying what some people might've said, which is, I don't have the training to do that. I, I'm not comfortable doing that. You know, I don't want to stretch myself in that way. And that none of that even occurred to me. And so I don't really take credit never, for it. It's just never kind of, say that if you're asked to do something. Never, never say that if you're asked to do something. If you have some specific tactical questions, yeah. then those are fine. But, yeah. but never sort of, never, um, if you feel, if again, if you're not interested in doing, that's a whole other story. But if you, sure. if you're interested in that path or a path, then you should always step in step up to the plate as they say but i would say that that serendipity is part of life for sure but i always tell people it's about proximity mm -hmm. and i think that you had that opportunity because of proximity because you made conscious decisions to put yourself at the magazine yeah and to rise to the challenge of figuring out how to edit or do whatever because you were a writer in college and you had this passion and you were into the music and like you had you had enough notion to say, well, if I want to do anything somewhere in this, I need to be closer to this. Like why having a job that's on the other side of the spectrum, how is right. that going to help me? Yeah. Then, it, then it's all serendipity. Like you hope that like the editor of Rolling Stone walks into Kinko's one days and sees your talent totally. from behind a copy machine. Like that's not how it happens. Right. It happens because you become an intern or you work the mail room or do some other thing. So I tell people all the time, man, you want something, Put yourself in proximity to it. Mm -hmm. It's the only way you're assured that you're at least going to hear about it or be in a consideration list because especially when the people are 
making some like impromptu decision like i did apparently walking out of the office you know and you know uh, on the way to lunch and saying, hey kid can you start doing some phone soliciting sure. um i mean i think that's if you weren't sitting there who got that opportunity of course proximity is everything yeah no i, I think that's right um yeah how, you know l- looking back how much has that sort of been uh throughout your career like like you know at what point was there a business plan whether it was written formally or or you know mapped out in any way for herb versus you know kind of making these decisions as they come to you um so i i definitely believed in proximity from when i was young um, I, I mean, I worked from like, I, I hustled from this, you know, as soon as I could work, I worked, mm-hmm. uh, partly because my mom said, you know, if you want spending money and you want to like buy candy or, you know, toys and whatnot, your stuff, as soon as I got, you know, to be older than like, you know, seven or eight or something, it was kind of like, yeah. think about how you can either take your allowance or, and eventually, I mean, I had just odds and ends jobs. And of course, as a teenager, you know, I worked at like Baskin Robbins. Then I worked at, I worked at McDonald's at one point I worked at, and then I got a job in an art supply store, which put me closer. And it's the funniest thing, man. Talk about proximity. I got the job at the art supply store. This was hilarious because I used to do graffiti. Mm -hmm. I was, I was, I, I did graffiti all through high school up until like, you know, I pretty much stopped at the point that I was going to, you know, next time I got arrested, I would go to like real jail. So I had to stop getting in trouble during graffiti. Uh, so about 19, I think I probably sort of walked away from it, but, but at 18, 17, 18, I was still doing graffiti pretty heavily. And I painted this wall up in a parking lot on La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles. Um, and and it was above this art supply store that used to be there. And then one day I was in the art supply store, probably thinking about maybe if I could steal some markers or some paint or something. And I started talking to the owner. They started talking to me or one of the manager or somebody. And uh, I mentioned something about the mural on the roof. Cause uh, you know, I think where he could get a sense that I might've been an artist or a street artist or whatever. Mm. And I just like told him that I did it. <laughs> which was probably dumb, but I think he gave me sort of an opening to let me think that like he appreciated the art or liked it or something. And he offered me a job. Wow. I got a job pretty much on the spot. And, uh, so, and that job then got me to the job that I got. That was pretty much my first music industry job, which was working for music plus a record store chain back, you know, back in those days. And, Mm -hmm. uh, music plus was where I met my partner, Mark, who we started the magazine together. And then, and, and pretty much allowed me to start the magazine and how I understood about labels and yeah. understood how the music industry sort of works. So it was all about that. Now, Herb was really, again, I didn't have a notion to start a magazine. I was a graphic designer. I had a passion for the music and mm-hmm. culture, and I had a real sense about like what I was going through lifestyle wise. But if Mark hadn't have walked you know, this idea up to me one day and said, Hey, I want to start this magazine. And I, and I see how into the, you know, desktop publishing you've gotten and how into, you know, working on Macs and stuff. 
uh, I don't know that I would have come up with an idea to start a magazine. So I give him a huge amount of credit for showing the impetus to like start a business like that. But as soon as he mentioned it or day, just a few days later, the spark went off in my head about what the magazine could be about. Mm. Uh, and that from there, it was pretty singular vision of like what we could go and create. And he bailed after the first issue oh, wow. <laughs> he got you know he had, he had recently gotten married he got married really young and he realized that his his passion for the storytelling that i wanted to do was not the same as mine yeah. and that i kind of already picked up the ropes of like two in a magazine which was far from true but that i you know had enough sense about learning already what he had done uh and uh he told me i remember i remember we were in the car driving and he was like, I think I'm going to, you know, bail out after this. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what the hell am I going to do? I don't know how to do this. We just started a company like a, five months ago. And, um, and you know, and that was all good, though. I mean, from then on, from like, you know, the beginning of like after the first issue, it's pretty much, you know, my company and then hire people to work alongside me, yourself included, for the, for the years to come. So it wasn't a plan, but but it became it became it became very clear in my mind almost and I, I think that's almost like you know i don't ever say that i am the idea generator mm-hmm. of all things like i never and that's why ideas i think are you know idea everybody's got ideas totally. and i think i think execution has to pair up with an idea and i think in my case i didn't I mean, I didn't come up with the idea to start a magazine, but I definitely came up with the idea of what it should be about. But then along the way, all the different, many of the evolutions of the magazine were driven by all sorts of other forces. And it was then hearing and appreciating what those forces would say and then contextualizing them and realizing the value and maybe what I'm being told. And sometimes immediately, sometimes weeks, months later, but, but at some point making it part of the machinery of what I was doing and that's proven to be successful. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to necessarily be the person that's always thinking of, you know, uh, the most incredible concept. You just have to be a person that knows how to listen and knows how to put things into motion. I mean, I, I love that. And I think, you know, I want to highlight a couple of things you, you said, you know, one, um, I mean, I was having this argument yesterday, many, many times recently, I think just given, where we're at, people are, are flush with ideas or they're, they're rushing to find ideas. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was arguing with somebody yesterday about whether, whether they should go share their ideas with people and talk about them before they're ready. And like, is someone going to steal them? That kind of thing. And I'm of the mind that, you know, you give your ideas away as freely as you can. Um, maybe with some, some guardrails, but, but for the most part, you know, you need the energy and the momentum to carry you forward. You also need feedback. Um, yeah. Right. Because ideas start out in your head and they're, they're unfinished. And until they see the light of day, you know, they, they can't really be complete. And, and I, exactly what you said, it, it comes down to execution. And I'm like, if someone can, if someone can think, of, if I can think of it, someone else can think of it. Right. And they may not think of it the same way I will, but it really comes down to who can pull it off and, and whose style of pulling it off works better. Yeah. I was obsessed and 
I know we're talking a lot about Herb and, it, and it, the founding is, is many years ago. However, a lot of the tenants I don't think are any different today. I think you talk to any startup founder and they'll probably tell you a very similar thing. But I was obsessed with the with the belief that someone else was going to do this before me. Right. Once it got it into my head yeah. that we were going to do a magazine about the underground scene in L.A. And at that point, we were really just thinking about Southern California, L.A. But we, we knew this music was coming in from all over. So essentially, it was going to be a broadly focused magazine. But the minute I was like, I was like, I look around, there's a lot of other, you know, kids going out to these events and like listening to this music and why is no one else doing this? It all came down to anybody else who had that idea just didn't put the pieces in play, didn't have a sense of how to do it. Maybe didn't believe enough in what they were feeling or that they felt, maybe they felt, but I had had, and, and I, and I think this definitely factored in, but having seen LA culture firsthand through doing graffiti um, and being part of like street culture of LA as a teen, I didn't, I, I definitely felt that LA rarely got its due in terms of how much we were contributing to culture, especially from graffiti. Like, cause everything I read on graffiti was New York or even Europe. Mm-hmm. It was nothing about LA graffiti. You know, it was like the rarest little clips in like an article here and there. The LA times wrote about us, wrote about other artists, but like, all the books we revered were all about New York artists and right. even European artists. So I had this notion that like, if LA doesn't speak up for itself, it doesn't happen. The movies make it happen, but that's a certain LA. But in terms of like the underground LA, that is always sort of like second fiddle to the rest of the world. So I was committed to showcasing things in a, in a real way. And so that was, that was what drove me to feel so confident. Like if it's one needed to happen and two that, you know, I could be a part of doing it. But yeah, my concern was that it's just an idea at this point. <laughs> no one's got a monopoly on that. If you're enjoying this one, I'll give you another one uh, from the Rebel Radio Archives that features uh, somebody that's been very important in my career. We had Bosco, uh, the great rapper producer, um, who was one of my early management clients. Um, and we worked together for, I don't know, three or four years back in the beginning of my career. So just following the Josh Levine uh, career path, if you want to dig into that one, we actually have two episodes with Bosco from a couple years ago. So go back and uh, find out what, uh, what it was like when I was starting out in the music industry. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, Something else you said, you know, you said almost from the beginning, there was this, this conflict, right, about, you know, crossing genres, you know, I know in the years we worked together, there was always, there was always somebody unhappy, right, whether it was, you know, clashes with writers or editors over, you know, whatever thing or who's on the cover or there's too much, you know, I'm sure you had the same conversations, but you know, my hip hop friends, said there's too much, you know, rave. And then my, my dance music friend yeah. said there's too much hip hop. And, um, and I think that's, we had a cover. You, you'll have to put in. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah, I was no, saying, we, like, we had a cover. You'll have to put in a graphic, you know, that was like epitomized that we did in the early nineties. It was just almost to answer the fact that, yeah, people are arguing at, yelling at us from both angles saying that like, we're too much this, we're too much that right. our scenes better and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of that. And, and, you know, whatever reason 
there was always, like I said, someone unhappy. Um, yeah. I think now, you know, uh, now you work with Coachella, which is very much the same. There's always, uh, there's always someone who hates the lineup and someone who loves it and someone who feels like yeah. it's jumped the shark and someone yeah. who feels like it's the best thing ever. And, yeah. um, you know, I wonder, and, and you and I have talked about this over the years with, you know, observing Paul T and his ability to weather that and kind of not care, or I don't know if he cares or not, but he, he, he charges on. Um, and I think that's, I won't divulge whether he cares or not. Well, that's his (laughs) story to tell. Paul Uh, Tillet can speak to that himself. He speaks to it a little bit in the film. He speaks to it a little bit in the film, uh, and how he thinks about it. That was, that was really nice to hear from, hear from him in that perspective in the film. Absolutely. So, um, so I think, you know, you guys are alike in that way. Um, I wonder, did you always have that sort of not that ability to, to not care or to, to press on in the face of, you know, that, that type of criticism or did you develop that? Along no, the way? I'm, I'm, I, no, I'm incredibly, uh, as a person, I have been, I won't, I don't know if I'm as bad today, but I've definitely been incredibly self-conscious, uh, you know, as a person. No, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's being a Taurus or if it's just being an only child or if it's growing up mixed. I mean, whatever it is, there's a bunch of things that are probably, um, conditional in there, but no, personally, you know, you, you say one wrong thing and it's going to get me to either like uh, fight or flight. Okay. Um, that said, when it comes to something that I really, and maybe this is it, this is, it's about, you know, maybe it's easier to be defending of something that isn't yourself, you know? So when I think about the magazine, which was a personal vehicle, but it was also like a broader mission that was well beyond me. Right. You know? And if I think about Coachella, my defense or my ability to, to deal with those criticisms is comes from a place of, confidence and knowledge and uh not conceit but really like one i've heard all these arguments before like i've been around so like none nothing you're saying is found observation rarely right occasionally Mm -hmm. someone will say something and be like that's pretty deep and you're totally right and we've either you know considered that and it's a just a it's a weakness that maybe the show has or we have or whatever and that's you know great like we should have the discussion mm-hmm. but arguments about like music today isn't as good it's just like come on man first of all i want to know who's saying that yeah and i want to then i want to look at your license because i want to see your age and then i want to i'm going to see your record collection and i want to understand the stuff that you think is better like i like lay it all out for me because i mean if, you, if that's your testimony then i want to cross-examine you because i and, and that's 25 years of being in music criticism and journalism you know that's given me that confidence to have that conversation which is why i was very forceful in some of the things i said on the screen and why i feel again it's not to say that you know we're always right you're always wrong kind of thing but it's like a lot of this stuff has already been sort of litigated as far as i'm concerned and rings hollow Mm um and i think and Frankly, I, I welcome those conversations because I think there's always granules of truth and, and misconception and all that stuff. And so I love to have the conversation because I actually think that's part of 
what makes it really interesting. So if, you know, if, if people want to talk about, um, uh, how Coachella in their minds hasn't been diverse enough, you know, I would love to see the perspective on where you think the diversity has been or has been, hasn't been reflected because I think just as a blanket statement, that's erroneous or mis, mis, misinformed. I've gone to Coachella for years. What about all those Latino kids that have gone to Coachella for, for decades, Mm -hmm. you know, um, what about all the Asian kids and, and mixed kids that have been part of Coachella's history for many years? Are you, are you outright saying like they never showed up or was the percentage that they showed up not at the level that you consider to be diverse? I mean, like, what are we really talking about here now? If you're talking about is Coachella been the place for representation, uh, as much as you would have liked to have seen over the years, I'm the first to say, in fact, we say it in the film hasn't been, Mm -hmm. But that was less by design and more by just the forces of culture at play in the broader public. You know, I mean, hip hop in 2004 and five was not what hip hop was in, you know, 2014. And so I think, um, I think Coachella is both a reflection of good and bad in culture and in terms of where people are at. And I think that's, that's just the reality of anything, you know, but I've seen things, I've seen things through cultural lenses for, you know, several decades now. And I could think about how painful it was to look at representation, you know, on MTV in the eighties and in the nineties and people forget like how far things have come and that, many of these sort of debates are just sort of time honored, timeless debates and they're worth discussing, but it's, you have to offer it with some broader perspective than just your sort of like critique on in the moment. Cause I think it's much deeper than that. Yeah. So it's not that I'm like, it doesn't roll off me like that. There are people like that. And I applaud them that just like, don't hear it. Don't read the comments and like, but, um, I'm definitely not one of those people. I, I read it or I take it to heart, but I also am very, I don't want to say defensive, but I am a good defender. I'm not defensive, mm-hmm. but I will defend. Yeah. And I'm, 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 I, I itch for a fight about stuff like that. Uh, I'd actually do enjoy that, that fight. Are there times, and, and you don't have to share the specifics if you don't want to, but do you look back on decisions that maybe you were, um, you went sort of too far in either direction and not necessarily like in a, in a debate, but in, in an actual decision about the business or about your career that you either kind of took people's opinion, you know, too seriously or not seriously enough. Uh, God, countless, okay. countless, Good. countless miscalculations and things. I'm sure small and large. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to answer that. I mean, there were definitely, I would say in the two, in the nineties, I think the magazine had a very different course. I mean, we, you know, there were debates, tons of debates and questions, but I felt like that was squarely my generation. And I had a very clear path yeah. in the two thousands. It became much more complicated because music was changing technology of getting your music was changing yeah. and of course media was changing 
and there were definitely bigger debates and I'm not sure that I always had the right perspective and I had to sort of be dragged into it on some occasions, like whether we were going to like cover more indie, indie bands. Mm -hmm. I was definitely hard fast against that early on. Um, but to the credit of our editors, um, they convinced me of the validity of certain artists and then it all things clicked. But again, like the idea and the Genesis doesn't, doesn't and hasn't been with me in many cases, but once it clicked in, I'm I'm a believer. Then I'm, then I'm on board and I've, you know, I'm, you know, I'm drinking the Mm Kool-Aid and that's, that's as good as anything for me. That's as good as whether I've invented the religion or adopted the religion is all good once I'm on board. And, uh, but so I think luckily my opinions didn't win out there in the short term. Um, I don't know. Does that answer your question or did I miss, no, did I, I miss the thrust? I think so. I mean, it, you're kind of touching on something bigger, which is that, you know, I, I mean, I think in any business, especially in one that's, that's, that runs on culture, right? Yeah. It's, there's an inherent challenge for all of us because the nature of culture is to change and the nature of business is to not change. Right. And, and, you know, corporations are set up to maintain a status quo. Um, and that every company now, you know, certainly this year, but, but for the last 20 has faced increasing, challenges to behave differently than the previous hundred years allowed them to. Right. And I think we, you were in this real microcosm of that where, you know, the magazine business, the media business, the music, uh, both the business side and the, and the music itself was all of a sudden changing at a, at breakneck pace. Yeah. And, um, and that's really hard to, to adapt to. Well, yeah. And people, need to respect seasons and you don't seasons don't last forever scenes don't last forever i mean most great scenes are like five years right like i mean just look in history they're not decade scenes right. i mean disco was probably like a hot five years 74 to 80 yeah that was hot you know punk 75 to 80 you know mm-hmm. like Electronic music is probably like, you know, the real hot phase of electronic music, 94 to 2000. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it in some ways, right? And so um, anything that can span more than one season, pretty rad in my book. Right. That's why I think Coachella is pretty incredible. That it spanned several, four or five seasons at, at this point, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and so... I think that's, that is, but again, the only way you span seasons is you evolve. You can show me something in history that has spanned more than one season. I'll just throw that challenge out there. Show me something that has spanned more than one season that hasn't like evolved in really profound ways. I mean, I don't, I can't think of what that would be. Uh, me neither. Uh, well, uh, call in if you have an answer for TV, it. all these things. Yeah, call in if you got that answer because I'd be very curious. But I, you know, and I don't even know that I, I appreciated that when we were in the trenches. Right. I just thought because in some ways, when you're in the season, of course, in your minds, this is the this is the future. You know, this is going to be what culture will be. Yeah. But anybody who's actually got a rearview mirror and has passed through some seasons appreciates the fact that you know you got five 
intense years or when things are going to really be interesting. Sure. Um, even the, you know, hip hop in its recent incarnation, there'll be this season of sort of like, you know, of which some people slag you this sort of mumble trap era, you know, five years or so. And things are already starting to kind of move out into some new places now. And it's fascinating to see where they'll go and what it'll sort of take, take hold. Um, but yeah, that's, I think navigating that is, that is one, a very sort of presumptuous thing to do to navigate that and to sort of feel that you'll have a stakehold, you know, in the coming, you have to earn that place in that next season for mm-hmm. sure. You don't get, you don't just get to pass mm-hmm. gracefully into the next season. You've got to earn your place and we had to do it. And I think any marketer has to do it. Talk to anybody that's at a company like an Adidas or Nike or, or, uh, you know, digital companies today, like, you know, Instagram, Facebook, um, Spotify, they'll, they'll definitely have to sort of adapt to the seasonal changes that'll come every half decade or so, because that's how culture will move. And that's, that, that is, you have to, I think you have to earn your place at each, at each stage. Yeah. No, that's that's how it should be. That's how it should be because it's, it's up like other people should be able to have their moment too. Mm-hmm. other companies, other movements, other artists, other festivals, like should have their, their place too. So I think it's rare and challenging to, to, to keep, keep moving. Yeah. I mean, that's a very evolved perspective. And uh... <laughs> you're saying like <laughs> too nuanced for, uh, or too, uh, too like, to in the clouds to be reality? No, 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 no. I mean, I agree with you, but what I, but I think that, you know, look, look, if we look at your career, you know, you've had amazing success, um, but it hasn't been a straight line, right? Mm -hmm. That like, like the rest of us, you know, you've had ups and downs, you've had, you've had seasons. Major, major. And then, you know, to use the sports analogy, then you, then you're rebuilding the team. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, having, having done that myself, having witnessed it uh, more broadly, that, that transition is never easy. It's never easy to end one season and go reinvent or start the next one. Um, no. but, we, but we don't, you know, I say it's of all perspective. Like we don't go into it with that expectation. If someone had told you when Herb started getting hot, that okay you got about four years left on this right so get there and then be ready for the next thing right you would have said you would have said well that doesn't match my expectation at all right like no i'm gonna i'm gonna be the next rolling stone or whatever it was which from the outside we just see this trajectory that keeps going forever yeah i think from the outside you can see that and if you look at my career for real you see that it's like it's ups downs it's crashes it's reinventions it's learning it's ground floor stuff but what i've had to bring bring along with each one of those incarnations or redevelopments um or pivots (laughs) you know that uh, you know in the the digital parlance Mm -hmm. has been about relationships and a certain level of you know, um, trust and, um, I mean, really, that's really at the core of it. Like I always tell people like, you know, do your best not to burn bridges, you know, cause you're gonna, you're gonna come across people again in your life. I assure you. And they're going to be, 
in a place, one, they may be in a place of need and you're going to appreciate their humanity more than you do now, right. or they're going to be in a place of power <laughs> and you're going to, you totally. know, you're going to be happy that you're not on the wrong side of them too. Yeah. So I like, I think that's, um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, in 2008, nine, I mean, we folded our magazine in 2009, it was like a hellish period. I wrote about it really, you know, briefly, I guess, in a blog recently, uh, post on Instagram, but like, I had to fully serve there, you know, I, there was stuff that I was doing in that space. There was still a notion that I may do this or that with the magazine, but truthfully I had to figure out what was going to be the next thing. And that's when I got into video and decided that essentially I was, you know, I didn't say I'm going to be a producer, but essentially I became a producer, mm -hmm. which was not very different from what I was doing with the magazine. It was just different technology. Yeah. Uh, but I had to like, you know, I had to fake it till I made it because I didn't really, really understand it. And even as I was doing it and getting paid to sort of do things in the space, I was sort of learning as I went. And now I know a lot more, but I sure as hell don't know a, a ton. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I had to start, you know, and, and it was really humbling. It was very humbling. Um, but that's about the, you know, I had to, I had to earn my place in the new era. Like that's just incredibly important. Anybody who thinks or feels that they're entitled to that next phase is deluding themselves and is in for a rude awakening. Um, um, so hum humility is the only way to, to handle it. It's yeah. the only way to sort of find yourself into that next, that next uh, era. And, and thankfully I was able to do it with the backdrop of those relationships and people that I, that I was able to sort of, um, you know, count on from my past to maybe like, give me a call, present an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, that's really magical, you know, a blessing, I guess I'll say to have that. And I try, I encourage people to sort of, uh, nurture those sorts of, uh, nurture that part of you that will encourage people to support you. Yeah. Um, in the years when you need it more than you think you need it today. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's great. I, I think, um, you know, for me, everything, everything good I've ever accomplished comes out of relationships. Um, and that's something I've always, you know, just taken really seriously. Yeah. Um, so, well, so talk about that. So, you know, that road brought you to golden voice and, and Coachella yeah. and, um, I'm curious, um, and you know, in the documentary, it talks about the importance of herb early on in that. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember yeah. our our breakfast with Paul at the uh, at the Mondrian, where he shared. You were very the, much a part of that. <laughs> uh, you know, you he were shared very the much a part of that. And, yeah. Um, uh, so I'm curious now, though. Um, you know, obviously, Golden Voice AEG is this massive company, very different culturally than, than, you know, what you had built on your own. Um, what are the lessons, the things that you have brought with you from that experience that are most valuable now? So like brought from my past experience, kind of entrepreneurial experience and yeah. running my own show. Yeah. Um, I felt like gold, I landed a golden voice or, you know, I kind of 
technically I worked for Coachella, but I was part of the Golden Voice family by extension. Yeah. Uh, now I'm part of AEG, just to give some distinction, the parent company, but still work a lot on Golden Voice and Coachella uh, properties. But Golden Voice I found to be pretty familiar. Like it felt a lot like it felt a lot like a mature herb in the same way that it had like you know there were there were small entrepreneurial style company dysfunctions there were there were information black holes like there was not very organized onboarding uh there were just you know and especially for somebody like me which no one was going to like hold by the hand like i was an industry veteran at the point so i was i was presumed to like i mean i remember showing up for coachella first year i was working at coachella in 2013 i didn't even know where to go on mm -hmm. my golf cart like i all i knew was how to go to a stage as a fan right and a little bit of maybe how to get to the parking lot but suddenly i had a golf cart and responsibility to know the whole field and no one really had much of a roadmap literally figuratively and so, uh, uh, but you just get out there and you start learning and you, you and I remember it, it kicked my ass like that first Coachella and it was two weekends, of course, at that, those years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, sure. it was brutal. It kicked my ass. I was, so, I was so wiped by the end of it. And now I get through Coachella's like a pro, you know, I come out of it. I'm, I don't get the cough. Right. I'm, um, I'm healthy. I good i go to jazz fest the fourth weekend you know essentially like um mm -hmm. but uh, yeah so trial by fire there was a lot of similarities to that I'm sure we did i'm sure we crushed people's expectations when they joined herb you know and they thought that they were coming into an organized or company sure. uh but i always really believe that you know uh people will figure out a lot of things and they'll they'll sort of create the company that they want to be a part of and try to support that AG is a little different. It's a little more buttoned up. Uh, now I have sort of a blend. I sort of work between sort of like, you know, two style of companies on the AG side. It's a little more structured. It's a little more corporate as they say on the coach on the Coachella golden boy side. It's a little more rock and roll, a little more music industry. I think they're both really awesome. And I feed off of both of them. Frankly, I think they're both really uh, they both inform kind of who I am and how I approach things. Nice. Um, so let's talk about the documentary. Uh, as yeah. you said, we're, we're definitely going to have to have you back because I have a lot more that I want to talk I about. Know. But um, I know. Uh, so I, I want to talk about the doc and kind of, you know, how it came together. Now seeing it, you know, of course it seems obvious and it seems like a great idea and all that. I'm I'm sure that there was some process to get to the decision to do that because it's also, you know, I think I, I want to talk a little bit about the risks that you guys anticipated and how you navigated those. Um, the risk, I think the, I think the risk, the biggest risk of putting out the documentary was, was, was finally for Coachella to be saying things and discussing topics that were, historically never something that Coachella discussed. Like, yeah. I mean, simple history was one thing. And frankly, 
pretty much public domain. Like most people knew Daft Punk came in 06 and changed the game. And right. um, I was surprised how few people actually knew that Gary Tovar was a pot smuggler. But, um, you know, some of the stuff you could find. You, all you do is go to the wiki or search Coachella history and plenty of stuff online to tell you a lot of this. But discussing representation and diversity at the festival or how the festival came to sort of reflect hip hop in its, in its broadest forms. Uh, whereas in the early days it didn't, um, how, how it's navigated leaving some of the old guard sort of, you know, behind to some extent, uh, those challenges, uh, and then lots of other sort of more nuanced pieces of the history. Um, and even the fact that it started, scrappy and 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 almost ceased to exist i mean year one of coachella in 99 could have been the only coachella we'd ever experienced right. you know if it wasn't for you know um paul deciding to like you know i mean basically emerged <laughs> in debt he emerged in debt and had a lifeline cast to him by aeg and aeg built just built a staple center and decided they wanted to get into like putting a bunch of shows in the staple center right Coachella could have just faded into history. Lots of lots of one year festivals out there we don't remember. Totally. So thankfully, all that stuff happened. But um, yeah, so I think the biggest risk though was sort of like bringing all that to the screen. And frankly, for them to you know let me be me be a part of that storytelling and sort of like let me voice a lot of things that you know the festival has not really the festival doesn't talk about itself like Coachella does. I mean look search Coachella talking about itself nothing's going to come up like Coachella doesn't do interviews it's not very it doesn't appear on social media as a person like mm -hmm. that's just not it's not how the brand operates and and so this was sort of in some ways off brand but in some ways it was so it was so I don't say necessary but it was like I'm so thankful because as a fan of the festival and as a fan of history and as a fan of all of the conversations that the documentary addresses, even if it's just a five minute sort of montage around hip hop's evolution and the perspective of hip hop fans and how they see themselves at festivals that I talk about a little bit, reflecting on Woodstock and all that, very personal, first of all, but also I think hugely important. Mm -hmm. I mean, Beyonce's whole film is that. Her whole two hour documentary is essentially representation and she schooled Coachella right. on representation. And I love that. I, I, that doesn't, again, talk about critique and accepting. I welcome that. I didn't say it to Coachella, but she said it to Coachella. She's like, come on Coachella. Like this is the fuller representation. And, and, but to Paul's credit, to Paul Tillette's credit and to Coachella's credit, we welcome the unvarnished truth to take that stage. And that was amazing. And she said it from stage, so, you know, thank you for letting me be the first black woman to headline Coachella, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it was just great that we finally got to do a film that reflected all of that stuff that had happened over the years and how electronic music had to fight, had to fight to survive through the 2000s and had to finally show up and Cascade saying like, guess what? It's been 20 years. Like, don't like, right. <laughs> don't think of our fight as something lesser than it is. It's been 20 years. We've been doing it out to, to show that we mean something to broader culture and that we're here to stay. And it finally showed up on the main stage. Um, and that was really great to be able to, cause that, you know, that story could have only been written in 2019. Like it hadn't mm -hmm. happened yet. Mm -hmm. Beyonce 
hadn't performed yet. So uh, that was the risk. I guess the risk was sort of being, being, you know, bearing, bearing all to some extent. I mean, there's plenty of untold stuff sure. of, of Coachella history, but to bear more than ever, ever has been bared and to, and to not do it right. I think the other risk was like to not produce a film that fans appreciated or that certain fan generations could have like said nothing in there for me, kid. Like that's all just like, you know, post Malone and Migos and like, right. where's, where's, you know, where's rage. We kind of had, we, sh we, we tipped our hat to every, mm -hmm. every sort of audience um, by just being honest to the history. Yeah. Like we didn't, it, none of it had to be, we didn't have to placate. It was all just like, that's what happened right. in really wonderful ways. That's kind of the history. And, uh, and there's, you know, hopefully there'll be plenty more that we can talk about in subsequent, um, you know, episodes, films. We're still hungry to do more. Nice. What, what's, yeah. what's been the biggest, um, uh, surprise or you know delight in in uh in the way it's been received um i there's been several i mean before we put it out publicly it was just getting some really great feedback from very discerning audiences you know i won't mention names but like certain artists that that mm -hmm. you know had that paul, paul had screened it for uh that we're like, you know, this is terrific. I mean, um, certain industry people that, you know, have seen a lot and you could probably argue could be easily jaded, you know, really thought it was well done. Yeah. But the most important thing was the audience, both in the office, the people that have been part of Golden Voice for many years, um, that are stewards of the brand and mm -hmm. care deeply, deeply about the festival. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just the anonymous fans that don't owe me or anybody anything. And I just would like read Facebook or, or YouTube comments. And, um, and they were espousing how great the film was and yeah. how the, gave them the feels. And they were talking to other people to encourage them to watch it. Like that wasn't, I won't say that was surprising, but that was hugely gratifying. And and I was, I was just, I was grateful that that's how it ended up because at the end of the day, that was really the only thing that mattered. If we made a film that, that, that could be, could stand as a, as a document of, of, of what Coachella has been about mm -hmm. and stand the test of time and five, 10 years from now could still be well-regarded to me as, as again, a person that's really married to the history and how things are sort of recorded in print it and print and in film um that would have been f like a fatal flaw had we not done right by sort of what people's collective historical perspective and appreciation and belief in what coachella has been if we didn't get that onto the screen in the right way sure it would have been pretty pretty tragic yeah so that was the most gratifying thing not to reflect on what could have been but the fact that we felt we did it right was the best like hands down a highlight of my career i can't think of the next closest one other than maybe launching the magazine a millennium ago <laughs> yeah for sure okay before i let you go a quick lightning round oh shit all right these scare me what's your favorite you city favorite city yeah favorite city to travel to uh 
So the favorite city to travel to just easily is probably New Orleans. Um, I grew up there. Like I lived there until I was 12 years old. I wasn't born there, but I lived there as a kid until I was 12. And we try to go every year for Jazz Fest. And anytime I just get into the city and find myself in the French Quarter on Frenchman Street or somewhere, you know, I just feel like uh, people, food, everything is amazing. New Orleans, I would say. There's, you know, I also have been to uh, New York more times than I could ever count. I would say that New York's probably my ultimate favorite city. Um, but in my heart, it's definitely New Orleans. Nice. Yeah. Who's your favorite DJ? Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, wow, that's a really tough one. Um, I, I mean, I have a few. Um, I love A Track because he is so encyclopedic. Mm-hmm. Every time, like I just, I'm. I, you can listen to A Track sets and you're learning. I love Giles Peterson um, rhythmically. Yeah the depth of the music and sets. Um, I cut my teeth on people like Junior Vasquez and Lil Louis Vega. And those sort of sets changed how I heard music. Like Junior Vasquez in the nineties changed how I listened to music. And I've never stopped listening to music in the way that he taught me to listen to music. Mm. So whether he's, I don't hear him these days playing, um but profoundly impactful um and today i I like people like black coffee um um yeah anyway those are a few that was a great a lot but i love all of those uh black coffee was definitely the highlight of my coachella was that three years ago oh he's so great yeah amazing He, he that style of playing uh I could listen to for hours. Totally. Yeah. What's the last yeah. great book you read? Um, oh, man. The last great book I read. Um, <laughs> the last, well, great's a tough one. I don't know if it's the last great book I read, but okay. like, the last book I read that that taught me a lot and that uh, I think will be with me for a bit is um, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh yeah, uh, uh, and uh, that was a book I needed at the moment to sort of get some perspective and to think about living life around your values uh, and letting that be more of your guide um, and it. appreciating sort of whatever the cards are dealt and just being able to sort of like be a little more, I hate to use the word Zen about it, but to be a little more uh, fluid about how you navigate it. So yeah, that one I liked. Love that. Um, What movie do you think you've seen the most in your life? (laughs) Most embarrassing ones. I'm sure. Uh, I used to say cocktails with Tom Cruise. I watched that thing way too many times for some Man, reason. I, I met Elizabeth Shue the other day, <laughs> and that was uh, that was fun. That That's was, funny. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, hell, I don't know. Smoking the Bandit, Convoy, like great. Um, um, you know, ch- childhood films like that. Um, 
uh, Star Wars, the original one, um, you know, 70s classics, man. Like, those are the ones that I know if I were to really add up how many times I've probably watched them, it's those. Totally. Yeah. yeah. A lot of great movies. You got to share some of those with your girls. Um, yeah, for the sure. La- the last one I should be able to answer, but I'm going to let you answer it. Um, if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? <laughs> the bottom line is <laughs> that's definitely something I would say a lot and do say a lot. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I'm, I'm one for emphasis and I'm one for like trying to sort of make sure our point is really seated, Mm -hmm. you know, and I probably overuse like, you know, at the end of the day or the bottom line, I I probably do that a little too much. Uh, There's probably other things. I mean, if it works, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Cause I, well, I believe in, I believe that there's um, there are overarching tenets on things that you have to grasp, you know, so at the end of the day or the bottom line is, is just a way of saying like, Great. forget everything I just told you, this is the mission. And yeah. maybe that should be the first thing you say, it's but the like, you have to let people know why you're giving them a bunch of stuff to think about because at the bottom of the line is that you are, you are in charge with this vision or you are in charge with the safety or protocol. So that I want people to appreciate their role in it. So right. I probably do lay on that a lot. Yeah. I mean, as a publisher, you have a, you got to give people the headline. Yeah, for sure. Log lines are important. I'm going through a process right now of developing some stuff, and it's just like there is no shortcut to log lines because they are the discipline, you know, of pulling out what the what the crux of your idea is. And you can write around, and I can be verbose, and you can write around it. But if you can't get to the log line, then you know you might leave people a little bit in the fog. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, dope, man. This was so much fun. I knew it was going to be, and uh, it was even better than I'd hoped. Um, I hate to let you go because lots more to talk about, but, um, but thank you for doing this. Everybody listening should definitely watch the Coachella documentary. I'm sure most of them probably already have. But if you haven't... Please watch. Check it out. And uh, send, me a, send me a note. Tell me, what you, tell me what we missed. Tell me what you think and um get in touch with me on linkedin but no josh man i you know i haven't done this and you've been you've been at this for a minute but i knew it would be a great combo and i've I've enjoyed it so i hope we can continue or i'll just get the same shirt on and sit in front (laughs) and we'll just we'll start it up again tomorrow absolutely the morning mornings with raymond and josh love it let's do it it. cool thanks dude yeah man And that was Raymond Roker on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Uh, Make sure you leave us a comment, a review. Tell us what you thought about this episode. Tell us what you want to hear next on Rebel Radio. Uh, Tell us what you're up to. Blah, blah, blah. Most importantly, next week, come back for more Rebel Radio. Peace.